Welcome to Time Out for Humanity, a podcast that invites you to take time off from work for your mental, spiritual, and physical health. Every episode, we interview an expert to show you how. Nathan Rim started Ground to Star Coaching to help people recover from trauma through spiritual healing. He's a licensed clinical social worker with emphasis on psychosomatic symptoms. To learn more about Nathan, go to www.groundtostar.com. Hi, Nathan. Hey, Andy. How's it going? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks so much for joining our show today. Thanks for the uh, invite. So immediately, my first question is, what is groundtostar.com? That's a fascinating name. Yes, it was inspired a little bit by some personal meditations on my own healing journey. I've always found it really helpful to have a vision of an ideal that I'm working towards, an ideal version of me, of life in general. And as a metaphor, that's sort of like a star in the sky that I'm like following and going in that direction. And that ideal was always very inspiring for me, it was very helpful for me. And at one point in my journey, it became really important to be who I was, to start wherever I was, because sometimes I would focus on, on that ideal and I'd use that as a litmus test for where I hadn't yet arrived or who I wasn't yet, or it somehow would be sort of flipped in an unhelpful way. And, and it sort of dawned on me, it's like, ah, the only way to really make one's way towards their star is to have both their feet planted on the ground starting wherever they are and just taking one simple step at a time. And so starting where we are, starting on the ground in order to move our way towards the star. And it was very meaningful for me. And so when I was thinking about a, a business name that had some personal significance to me, and kind of just a phrase that popped in my mind, ground to star coaching. So that's where mm -hmm. that came from. And how did you choose to enter this field of coaching? That's a great question. Um, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I could remember, you know, when people would ask me, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, you hear the classical fireman or policeman or whatever. I was like, I want to, <laughs> I want to help people. I want to be a counselor. I don't even know what a counselor really was. Um, but I, I just knew that I wanted to help people. I, I wanted to be a counselor. I heard counselors do that. And fast forward to being in college and it just really made sense to me to pick uh, my major as psychology, which then morphed pretty naturally into social work, uh, which is also a field of helping people. And I became a psychotherapist uh, with an emphasis in trauma. And I really enjoyed being a psychotherapist. And I still am one. I, I provide therapy sessions for folks. And, and at one point, um, I really appreciated the context of coaching as something different, uh, not necessarily better or worse than psychotherapy, but it has a different function. And I love the emphasis of um, empowering the person on their own journey in a non-clinical context. And so that's when I formed my second business to do more of the coaching aspect. And my approach there is uh, called organic intelligence. And it's a, it's a type of approach that really um, connects with the individual and focuses on what they're doing well, what are their strengths, and connecting them with what they most 
deeply desire and somehow resources coming from all different kinds of places, the universe, people from within them during the conversation, uh, resources come to help them uh, get where they want to be. And I just sort of reflect that back to them. And so I really like that coaching style and I wanted to do that more. So I made that second business. What is organic intelligence? Organic intelligence is a very simple idea. And that is that what I am and what you are, what every human being is, is a complex system. It's a system made of many different parts that have their own individual functioning, like a heart and lungs, but they all work together. That's what makes it a complex system. Somehow the heart and the lungs are, are physiologically linked. When I breathe in, my heart rate goes up. And when I breathe out, my heart rate goes down. That's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And it's just a small example of the literally thousands of different interactions that our whole physical system is doing. And the idea is that if we're trying to just fix one thing in our lives, whether it's one part of our bodies or one emotional experience or fix this one thing, uh, we're really missing the big picture that we, we operate as a whole unit. And every single one of these parts has its function to play. And what really helps a complex system like you and I is not necessarily always focusing on what's wrong, even though it's really tempting. You know, we want to go to the pain point. But really, this organic intelligence says there's something in us that has led us to even being here in the modern day. We have evolved over thousands of years, millions of years, to become Homo sapiens. And that evolutionary process has a sort of intelligence to it. There, who we are by our nature is not only um, capable of surviving, but capable of thriving, procreating, creating lives of coherence and connection with other human beings and with ourselves. And we really want to tap into that inner intelligence that everyone carries within them just by nature of being human. And we often do that through relationship. So the relationship I develop with the person. And we often discover that sort of spontaneous organic intelligence by focusing on the here and now in a more neutral and positive sense rather than what's wrong. We honor what's wrong. We track it to see if what we're doing is working, of course. But overall, the focus is different than maybe lots of therapies where it's like dig into the problem and work with it or something. And we, we want to we dig into you know, the wellspring of life. That's what we want to dig into. And, and out of that um, comes health and healing often. Where does that wellspring of life come from in terms of the larger system? And Tom would say the larger consciousness system, other people have other words for it. Is that innate to nature or is that something that people developed or our species developed specifically in humans? That's a great question, Andy. And, you know, I can give my opinion on that and, and, and that's my what perspective. We want. Yeah, right? Right? That's what we want. Who, who, we're interviewing you. Because <laughs> who, really, who really knows, you know, what's going on? Because we're, we're, we're talking about the great mysteries, right? Yeah. And, and so what's fun about the great mysteries is we can just share really freely and, and see what others yeah. think. So, so what I think um, is going on there is um, 
I have a, I have a view that um, in a in a real way, Andy is Andy and Nathan is Nathan, and Nathan is not Andy and Nathan, and Andy is not Nathan. Right? There is some important kind of difference that is essential to all life, and also underlying that is some sort of unity and and um, monism, philosophically speaking, or sameness. There's a shared substance, and I'm not talking about uh, that you have molecules and I have molecules, although that's another level of sameness, but even more fundamental than that. Um, there's something about Nathan, Andy, the desk that this computer is on. There's a shared something. And that quality inherently has something of beauty, something of goodness, something of truth, something of the life force or the spirit of life, as some call it, some sort of essence that is coherent. So coherent meaning there is uh, the, the easeful exchange of information and energy, and that's what makes life and reality possible. And part of the journey for a lot of us is rediscovering who we really are, not our ideas of ourselves. And who we really are is in some ways Nathan and what he likes and doesn't like. Those are important parts of me. But there's something about me just being a part of the web of life, the interrelatedness of all things. And that has a, if you want to say energy or essence, or, you know, we, we find physiological markers of it, you know, but we don't really know what it is. The, the neural patternings that fire, how beautiful that electrical storm, right? What is that? In essence, uh, we don't really exactly know because we keep trying to go smaller and smaller with our microscopes until there's not any farther that we can peer, you know. And and so uh, that organic intelligence is arising, that deep wellspring is arising from some unnameable but knowable place. And I differentiate that. Unnameable, we can't really name it, but it is knowable. We can experience it. We can be it. And when I see my clients sort of spontaneously move into that state, wow, their, their whole physical expression changes. Their, their posture is more aligned. Their voice is different. They're more present in their eyes. And it's not that they, they became more spiritual by leaving and going somewhere. They somehow became more themselves and more present here and spiritual simultaneously. They're, they're somewhere beautiful, but they're also fully here and solid. And so what that is... That's probably the best way I can put some words around it, but it's it's quite an experience. So um, I, I, I'm really grateful for the role of meditation in my life because that's the only way I've really substantially and consistently touched that and more and more bringing that to my everyday life too, slowly. What is the relationship between that presence and our personal slash social identity, Nathan Rim? Andy Chu. Yeah, isn't that a question? Isn't that a question? I was working with a client once, and um, this client, uh, she really liked um, American football, right? And so she really liked American football. She would, um, you know, first thing she would wake up, she'd check, you know, how the teams are doing, you know, that kind of level of, of uh, enjoyment and we were doing our work together and 
the state that I'm talking about, this wellspring, more and more it was happening for those clients in sessions. And that's because it was coming from within the client. And I, my job is just to be like a big mirror and say, hey, you know, look at what, what's coming from inside you and what this is like. And just helping reinforce and reiterate that, right? And so um, that was happening more and more until one day she said, I'm just not that interested in football anymore. I go, oh, you know, tell me more about that. And, and she just went on to say how it's just not that interesting to her. Um, and, and through conversation, we were really discovering that her interests were changing and what she found stimulating, what she found beautiful, you know, and, and uh, it was a, it was a conversation that led to these gradual dissolutions of what we think we are. We often hear about big experiences of that, right? People in meditation, you know, some some Zeus lightning bolt just smacks them in their ego and they're egoless and they have to reformulate their identity. And that does happen for people. Um, and I find often, too, a lot of people experience it gradually as they're growing. Things kind of slough off that were enjoyable or not so enjoyable, but then they kind of switch poles. What wasn't enjoyable was and what was wasn't. And it begs a whole question of, you know, what is this function of I? And because really what is I except what I like and what I don't like? I, I accredit that uh, simple description to my uh, teacher, Steve Hoskinson, and it's a great one. The ego or I is a really complex combination of things I like and don't like. And it's really interesting to see how that shifts as we find ourselves more aligned, more on a healing path and growing trajectory. And what's cool, I think, is that it's not that what we like or, or don't like ever stops existing in and of itself. It just changes what I like and what I don't like. And so somehow it still seems really important that I have a name, Nathan, and you have a name, Andy, and we have things we like and don't like. Um, and it's been really interesting for me to hold a grain of skepticism to say, what's really fundamental about who we are or what really makes me me um and often things do stick around and maybe for someone else part of their healing trajectory is liking american football I'm not saying there are things to like or don't like that are more essential than others but it seems to be a very beautiful story to to witness in myself and in others we we somehow become more in touch with how we are united as we grow and we become more interested in differences in others rather than differences causing polarization. I become more interested in what Andy's into, even if I don't know anything about it. And it might even be really different from my perspective, but I find that stimulating and interesting. And so it seems to be the long uh, road that I'm taking to get to this point. It seems that difference, it seems that difference is a way of cross-pollinating. Things being different is a way of creating, uh, from a physiological standpoint, biological resilience. The more diverse an ecosystem is, the more resilience it has. Biggest Little Farm is a great example of that. People will watch that film. But um, I think somehow uh, we use difference and identity to hide from our true selves. But then when we connect with our true selves, it becomes this flowering of unique expression of that sameness that we all share that that essential i whoever that is Mm. so 
Is it fair to say that that presence is the true I in your experience? I think so. I think so. In my experience, I have found that that sort of sameness, so to speak, that, for instance, you and I share, I can experience that in a very removed way from my personal identity. And, and that really does have this connecting uh, aspect and capacity for all of life. I mean, I was going through uh, going for a walk the other day in the nearby park, and I was just being in that sort of state. And I saw a tree. And it was just bringing tears to my eyes. And I said to myself, I don't know if I've ever seen a tree until now. And there was this way that Nathan wasn't really necessarily part of that equation. There was just pure experience in that moment. It was quite beautiful, that I-ness. And at the same time, I more and more have come to value the little ego and the, and the individual expressions of who we are. And I've, I've tasted how, in some ways, that that true I or who I am back here as a metaphor, it sort of uh, as this amorphous Plato, uh, Plato, it gets pushed through, um, you know, the, the Plato forms of like the star or the circle or the square. And that still has that essence in it, even if it has a unique form. And so in other words, uh, I, I like cooking, for instance, not everybody does. That's a unique Nathan thing. And I find, a connection with all that is through cooking sometimes. And that's a unique thing, just specific to me, not necessarily in a meditative state. And so I, I came into touch with that true Ines through meditation and I'm finding it more and more in a positive way, sort of seeping into everyday life and not needing like an altered state per se to experience. It's just kind of here. How does that true I interact with trauma? People who have had trauma, that's a great question. I think in several ways. Um, trauma, first of all, it really uh, can, for some people, uh, goof up their identity by um, personalizing uh, the harm done and being in a collapsed or a projective state or a, a holding or upright state. So in other words, uh, I like examples or stories. So I was working with a client and uh, she had really severe trauma, really severe trauma. And um, what ended up happening was she had a part of her personality that was convinced that she was worthless and would even remind her of that pretty, pretty regularly and have all kinds of examples of life. She, this brilliant, brilliant person. They were, uh, you know, they had their PhD and, and, uh, you know, just operating at another, another level intellectually and emotionally, very emotionally intelligent in a lot of ways. Um, and yet there was this part that was so convinced irrationally, unfortunately, that, uh, they were worthless and they were stupid and had all these stories to back that up. And that was firmly rooted in trauma. That was not who that person was, but things have been done to her that communicated implicitly, you are worthless and you are stupid. And uh, 
she took that on. And I see it also in other clients who uh, do the flip side or the pendulum swing where um, I'm going to make other people feel stupid. And I am going to dive into my books and I'm going to know everything about everything. And I like being on Facebook and letting people know what I think. And, and there's this, you know, sort of holding pattern of, and, and people identify as both. They, they think I'm really smart and I know my research and, you know, and that's an identity as a smart person, or they identify as the first client is talking about like, Oh, like I'm worthless. I'm stupid. And, and both of those are just distortions on that true sort of nature. It's like, ah, somehow who we are is infinitely wise. And, uh, and yet that gets twisted. That gets twisted into these compensations and, and uh, collapses. So yeah, trauma, trauma can really goof it up. And, and it can really um, send people in the wrong direction. So people can become traumatized and they're suffering from, from that. And what they think will help them is uh, somehow uh, if only they look a certain way or if they think a certain way or if they can um, even things that are really positive, like, oh, like I'm going to, I'm going to make sure no one ever experiences this in the world that I went through. And they think that they will find sort of inner peace through uh, fixing everyone else's problems while they're really suffering on the inside, but they sort of abandon their own hope for happiness. And they just try to make a project of fixing everyone else's problems. Not as it's, it's kindness to it for sure, but trauma can sort of send people on uh, a misguided journey of, of healing because it feels so right to go in this direction. And it feels so right to think of myself or others this way. And, and it's a, it's just a spun compass is all, it's nothing personal, but trauma does that. Do you help people, do you help people recognize that presence to heal their trauma? I do. I do. And how do you do that? Well, usually by getting out of the way. I, uh, as, as funny as it may sound, because uh, I'm talking a lot in this interview, I actually do more listening in my coaching sessions because uh, that, that uh, essential I-ness or identity, it already resides in the client. There's nothing I can really uh, do to make someone that way or uh, bring something special within myself other than who I am. And, and part of who I am is really interested in how people can experience their own spontaneous uh, experiences of that identity. So uh, part of what this approach organic intelligence does is, is it shows that complex systems like you or I even if I come into a session with you, Andy, and you're going to help me and I'm really disorganized, I, I'm suffering, I'm confused, and you know, you're with me in that and supporting me. If we create a safe environment and this safe relationship with me, then somehow, even as I'm going on about you know, the challenges of life and I feel so lost, I, I'll start sort of accidentally almost even, it looks like, start talking about something that is coming from a deeper place. I start talking about something or remembering an experience that actually has more to do with that state. And then 
uh, you would simply become more curious with me about that. Like, I think an example of this uh, with my clients would be one time I was talking uh, with a client and they're talking about just their, their terrible suffering, of course. Like, like that's, that's just where we start, you know, that's a perfectly fair place. And so it's just been a really hard week. And, and then um, they started um, talking about uh, something, but it was really subtle. It's often unconscious. They start playing with uh, their hummingbird earrings. And I noticed that. And, and this deep part of us often is more unconscious. It's not realized yet, but it's saying sort of for those who are observing, not just listening to the words, but they're really observing the person. The unconscious is saying, I want to talk about this now, but they're talking about, you know, pain and suffering, but there's this. And I go, oh, those are really nice earrings. And I just sort of interrupt them because uh, I have the, they trust me enough to do that. You know, some people, it's not good to interrupt, you know, you're just with people wherever they are and you start there. But when you have a little bit of trust with people, I go, Look, I really like your earrings. Sorry, I just had to interrupt you. They really caught my eye. And they'll start talking about, and this client was talking about um, how their grandma loved uh, hummingbirds. And, and so they're talking about it. And then the whole memories of grandma start coming in and how parents were horrible, but grandma, grandma was really there. And grandma was this conduit, so to speak, of grace, like uh, the, the iconic grandma that loves you and you can't do anything wrong, even if you, you know, were sneaking a cookie out of the cookie jar you weren't supposed to and the jar falls on the ground and it cracks, you know, it's like grandma just laughs and she says, you know, I'll, I'll help you clean that up and you want a cookie? And, you know, it's like just this unconditionality. And this, this classical physiology changes, right, as she's talking about grandma. And then so we spend a little bit of time with grandma, and I just go, and as we're talking about grandma, what are you noticing? And they just say, I feel so loved. And there's just tears that start to come down. And this, this, this healing balm of love often is coming in so many different ways into our lives, but we miss it because we're focusing on what's wrong. But part of us deeply knows, ah, like love is always here. And I just help make that unconscious love and support conscious by reflecting it back and my curiosity. And, and then by repeated experiences of that, clients get to taste for themselves rather than hearing about it from someone else. They taste for themselves what that is. And then they begin to cultivate it more without them trying and pushing really hard or me like hoping that they'll do it or something and like wanting things to be different. I just embrace things as they are, help that experience happen whenever it can. And then clients say, I started, I started meditating. You know, I've started exercising. I, I'm eating well. And it's this effortless path that is more about receiving than it is about, you know, mustering up and getting something done. So yeah, it's coming from within the clients. And as much as I can help them experience themselves with a capital T, you know, the more just happens outside of session two. So in that case, the presence within the client prompted the client to play with her earring. Yes. And somehow you caught, you, you connected to that and you asked about it. It's as though the presence in you responded to her presence. And I know we're using a lot of metaphors. We're 
you know, making, perhaps making something out of nothing, you know, using all these metaphors. But it seems like you're saying that that presence um, is almost a field that you're both in. And it causes both of you to interact in a new way that helped her remember love. Mm. So it's not only that it made her touch the earring, but it also made you talk, ask her. And both of you had this beautiful moment. Yes, exactly, exactly. Because um, I, my biggest offering that I can come is me just being me. And if I am focused on what's wrong, uh, my teacher calls this the what's wrong attention. And if I am sort of in my internal experiences with images and thoughts and, you know, emotions that I'm like, oh, like, what if my client was describing how she has suffered so much this week? And I'm in my head going, oh, God, like another week of this or like, oh, like this, this client is just, it's so hard for me sometimes. I just, I'm kind of hungry. And, you know, I, I start being in my own little world. I would have totally missed this, right? Because I'm in, I'm also in, in her world or my own world focused on negativity. And if I'm here and I, I can join with that experience of hers, but I'm not necessarily buying that that's everything that's going on here, then yeah, I have this um, connection with what's actually happening, not what's being talked about, what's actually happening in this present moment. And as I'm connecting to that, I can see a whole array of behaviors. Yes, the client's looking up here and talking, but the hand's doing something or the feet are doing something or there's all, even if it's just like the spine gets slightly more aligned, like I can see other things that are happening that I'm like, ah, there it is. Because I am, I'm priming myself or I am, I am giving myself the expectation patiently that something will come from the client that is what they need. It's not coming from me. It's coming from within them, and I need to reflect it back to them if I can see it, if I can notice it. And so, exactly, it's coming from from the client, and that is that's only possible when I'm sort of connected to an easeful presence that's just observing, rather than sort of caught in the winds of something. So I, I kind of have to bring it with me to to recognize it outside of myself. I have to kind of bring it to some degree inside of me too. I think it's a really accurate reflection, Andy. Mm. That must be very hard for people with trauma. Um, how does that translate to people who have severe trauma, like coming back from a war? Yeah, yeah. It, it translates to uh, slow and steady wins the race. Uh, when people come back with really severe trauma, um, that, that, if we want to use the metaphor of presence or that, um, that physiological coherence, if we want to be a little more concrete and scientific, uh, that physiological coherence, when, when cells talk together really well, spontaneously for whatever reason, and then it goes back to disorder and then cells spontaneously talk to each other really well. And there's more spine or there's earrings or there's more coherence. That's happening still, even in the most traumatized client, that we, we cannot escape our true nature as presence and coherence and something more than just what we think we are. Um, and with severe trauma, complex trauma, um, that's going to happen more and more, those, those moments of spontaneous alignment. 
That happens more when there's really strong relationship. And with complex trauma, um, part of what makes it complex is not only just the horrific things that have happened, but it has skewed the template for people's expectations from other human beings. So if I'm highly traumatized, I remember I had a client who um, we they had to stand by the door, right? Mm-hmm. This was like here's Nathan Ream, right? I'm I am not a physically dangerous person, and yet this person, part of them was convinced that I could physically harm them, even though this client was actually much larger than me. That that's another thing how how skewed it can be. This person was much larger than me. They could easily overpower me. Um, but they had to stand by the door for many sessions in the beginning. And I just totally was with that. I was like, I'm so glad you're doing that for you. Where would you like me in the room, handing over all the power to them and really giving them a sense of like, however they are is okay. And they can actually control the, where the furniture is, where we're sitting, all that stuff. And you know, it's not going to be a whole lot that we're going to see that coherence in the beginning of those stages because that sort of uh, presence or physiological coherence, if you think about it as a microcosm, what is it? It's two cells talking to one another smoothly, and then it's multiplied. It's thousands of cells talk to each other smoothly, and you get that aligned spine or, you know, the hummingbird or something. Well, as a microcosm of the macrocosm, there's one human being and another human being. And I'm probably not going to see a lot of that presence until there's some relationship coherence, mm-hmm. until that person feels safe and connected. I really am trustworthy and I can't make them do that. And the harder I try to, it'll probably take longer. I just have to be me and love them and just do what I can to help them feel safe. And when there's more coherence, then that template can calm down a little bit because it's like I need to protect myself mm-hmm. whenever I am in, interact with people until we're invited into a little d- deeper layer of intimacy and safety because we've earned their trust. And so with complex trauma, it's usually a, a long-term work. It's more relationally focused. And then when there's more trust, there starts to be more of those spontaneous experiences of coherence. And often I'm not even making a big thing of them. I'm just spending a little bit more time talking about those things or um, just noticing it and even within myself just saying, ah, that's the way. And I just prime myself to enjoy that more. And somehow by me just focusing on those things, sometimes subtly reinforcing it for the client just by talking about it more, it happens more. And it's just going a really light hand, not heavy handed. It's like, oh, you did the coherent thing. Like, did you notice that? And they're <laughs> like, whoa, what are you talking about? I thought we were just like talking, you know? And, you know, it's like keeping it really just, laissez-faire, very simple, very friendly. And then more and more can become more explicit rather than implicit. The more trust, the more connection, they get more capacity for putting their attention on positive things, which is actually kind of hard. People say, oh, we need to have people focus on uh, the hard things to get better. What I find is it's really hard to have people focus on good things. It's really hard. People are addicted to what's negative, what's wrong, what's bad. Um, Because it is a physiological addiction in the brain, the the way the amygdala fires, it's actually a reinforcing loop that is chemically uh, driven. So people are kind of on a a what's wrong drug. And uh, over time with healing, people get more capacity to notice positive things without needing to squelch it right away. 
And that's when you know complex trauma is really healing. When a, when a client can be with a positive experience more explicitly with their attention, and it actually feels good to them, and they don't need to like get away from it or say, yeah, but I still have this pain in my knee or something. And, you know, it's a, it's a long-term work, but it's actually some of the most beautiful work because people have the most, and I've seen it, most dramatic transformations and they become massive resources for traumatized communities because they've been there and they know, they know what it's like to be that traumatized. And then they can walk with people in a way that someone like me who hasn't experienced such severe trauma can't. And that's why we need people from all kinds of uh, backgrounds, uh, challenging and not so challenged, because we all have a function and a role to play. Uh, when we are healed, we have something unique to give based on our background. So it's a, complex trauma is long-term work, but it's very worth it. You lead meditation sessions sometimes? I have done that. I have, especially guided ones. I find that with clients that um, have a harder time because of their trauma, they're, they have really intrusive thoughts, really intrusive emotions. Uh, I find guided visualizations are very helpful, especially around nature, guided visualizations around mountains or nature, ocean, and things like that. There's something, again, about um, that that essence that we were talking about earlier, somehow it's easier to access a little bit in nature for a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people in nature. And so sometimes I do, I do that. And it, uh, I know, I know it's working really well when a client starts snoring. I consider that uh, like Olympic level success when a client falls asleep in session. It's like, yes, like I, you know, they got to such a state that they could really let down like that. And so it's not often because, again, I, I really want it to come from them. You know, I, I might introduce a, a guided visualization if, A, they ask, or, B, they just really need some, in the beginning of the work, some, you know, like really strong uh, supports or clear things that then we can sort of remove later when they're not needed. But So I might do that in the beginning just to really help that system in the right direction. But uh, overall, yeah, oftentimes people will have spontaneous meditative experiences. And I just say, take all the time you want with this. And that feels nice because then they don't have to interact with me and they're in some sort of visualization. And then they might come a little bit back to report what they say and then they're back into it. So I like spontaneous visualizations and spontaneous things because then I, I just have, I'm observing what's happening. I can tell they're starting to go into that. Then I just give them permission. They don't have to talk to me anymore. They can just be with themselves and their experience and some beautiful some beautiful messages, so to speak, have come through sometimes, even in those places. In the grand scheme of things, is there a purpose to suffering? For my own healing journey, my suffering has given me a kind of presence with other people, whether they're suffering or not, but it's given me a kind of presence um, that I don't know if I could have before. Maybe I could have, I don't know, but I just know my journey. It has given me a deeper capacity for connection with all of life. And I know for many of my clients, 
they they also report something that's called post-traumatic growth. There's good research around this if people want to wiki and Google around, but post-traumatic growth is this experience that many people talk about of they go through something traumatic, they come in for trauma healing work, and not only do they sort of resolve the the symptoms, so to speak, that brought them in, you know, they were having, you know, flashbacks and all these other things, but they talk about how they're different people than even from before the trauma. So uh, somehow they've healed more deeply than just a traumatic experience. They have changed who they are, their outlook on life, their, their values even. And wow, you know, if suffering has to happen, which does seem like an inevitable part of our reality, we have to accept and acknowledge. If it has to happen, I, I certainly see how I and others have made great meaning and purpose out of, out of suffering. And if that sort of corresponds to a larger purpose, like suffering was somehow a part of the divine plan or something, then uh, all the better for it. But if not, we, we have found a way through evolution to commandeer challenge and make it something beautiful. And that's the presence. That's the presence, yeah. Mm. Yeah. If that presence can speak through you and someone asks you, who are you? What would you say? I am eternal and I'm here. I am breath and I'm breathless. I am here and I love you. I love you so much. Thanks so much for being our guest, Nathan. Yeah, dude, this has been a pleasure, man. Thank you for this opportunity to chat together and uh, hope this helps some people. I think it will. Thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thank you. To learn more about Time Out and NIMSA, go to nimsa.me. Join our social media and continue the conversation on Time Out for Humanity. Let us know what topics you would like us to cover.